So our reading for today, we'll, we'll be starting in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as, and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in his, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So in many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Amos 5, verses, verse 18, excuse me, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. This is the word of the Lord. I actually start about giving you a little bit of background on Malachi, even though this is chapter 3. You may or may not know that the Bible, the Old Testament, is divided into sections. There's the first five books are called the Law of Moses or the Pentateuch, and they are historically accurate books. They're followed by the uh, next 12 books are usually called the historical books, but they're actually the other historical books. Uh, so the first 17 books are, are the history of God's dealings, uh, starting with Adam and Eve and creating uh, Israel and so forth. Um, then there's the five poetical books. I wish I could give you a little bit of how to read those, but we, you can talk to me about that at any time you want. And then there's the five major prophets and the 12 minor prophets. Now, just like in the 12 historical books, the last three of the 12 historical books are after the exile of Israel and Judah. So the last three of the minor prophets are after. And a big key to reading the prophets is all the prophets start with the word of the Lord came to so-and-so during the kingship of so-and-so and so-and-so. And so you correlate those so you know what actually is happening in Israel during that time. So Malachi is the last book of the Bible written. Some people believe it was written 397 B.C., some say 392, but all the opinions are in that five-year range. Okay, so it's written just a little more than 400 years before this prophecy is fulfilled, because Jesus tells us that the messenger that was to come, uh, there's actually two messengers if you read carefully. The first one is John the Baptist, and the second one is Jesus. Right? So, uh, uh, and their ministry was approximately uh, 26 AD to 30 AD range, and so you're just over 400 years. Now, in the Bible, uh, 40 years is considered a generation, so you're talking 10 generations. Anybody know much about your grand-great-great-grandfather back 10 generations? Probably not. Um, But uh, they had a much different approach to history back then. And so, um, in any case, Malachi, often um, in the Bible, names had meanings, and the meanings told you something. So when God comes into someone's life, both in the Old Covenant and the New, he often changes their name. So Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. And, you know, Simon, uh, Peter, or Simon becomes Peter, and Saul becomes Paul, and so forth. So Malachi actually means messenger. So what, uh, what this book is actually saying is this very first verse is a double play on words. He's saying, behold, I'll send my Malachi, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger, the Malachi of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears for he's like a refiner's fire. So let's just talk about these two verses for a little bit. And I'll just go as far as I can with these two portions of Scripture today and help us. And, uh, you know, hopefully I can remember enough that it'll be worth your listening. Uh, <laughs> and that we'll all learn some things or be edified to some degree. So um, Jesus makes it clear that this first messenger, behold, I send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, the, is... John the Baptist. Now, so with that in mind, let's actually go over to the Luke portion. In Luke 3, keep your paper in mount. And notice um, uh, 
The Luke version was uh, 3, 7, right? Luke 3, 7 through 13, was that the reading I, I was looking for a bulletin? But that, it was 3, 7 through 13? Okay, so um, let's look a little bit about how John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord. Because if you study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you will see a pattern that the Lord always prepares the way this way. So one of the reasons we're doing this reading is John likes to follow, um, I forget the name of the book he uses or whatever, but it, he's basically following kind of an ancient formula that was used in the early church uh, of following the church calendar. We're in a time of Advent, and Advent means the, when you talk about Advent, you're talking about preparing ourselves a season of preparation, 40 days, because uh, 40 days being symbolic of the 40 years in the wilderness and the 40 days of Christ's temptation and, and so forth. Uh, you're talking about a period of 40 days that we're preparing to encounter the Lord in a greater way. So this actually applies to any time you're wanting to encounter the Lord in a greater way. And, your, and how to open up your life to experience more of God. So if you want to experience more of God, you don't have to do this just during Advent. But Advent is, is a time, the church calendar idea, every day is the Lord's day, and every day is holy to the Lord. The church calendar idea just re remembers that we're not all that consistent as we ought to be, and so we got to at least remind ourselves of some of the most important things of Scripture on some kind of regular basis. But you can remind yourselves of this all the time. That's part of But Advent, we are preparing our hearts to, for, for the light of the world to come into uh, to our church, into our families, into our hearts, into our lives. Okay? Now, in Advent, um, you're actually... Um, preparing for two events. So they talk about, like in study theology, you'll hear the phrase, the first event of Christ and the second event of Christ. Everybody familiar with those terms, hopefully, by now, because John talks on this kind of stuff a lot. So the first event of Christ was the birth of Jesus and his sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection, all the stuff we've actually been studying in our eight essential elements of the gospel series. We've been, I think... Uh, We've been looking at Christology and, and the doctrines of Jesus for around 18 weeks or something like that and uh, on, on, at the 930 meeting. So all the things that, that Jesus is about in his first coming is the, called the advent of Christ. Christ has promised that he'll come back. Uh, again, I know in your generation you might think the most important person that, that said I'll be back was Arnold Schwarzenegger. But... Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, those of us who are my age might th think the most important person ever said that was Douglas MacArthur when he uh, left the Philippines. But actually, they were just uh, minor for minor uh, blimps on the radar compared to the, to the great one who said, I'll be back, who's Jesus. So it's a basic doctrine of Christianity. All these ideas about negative eschatology and everything like that. The one thing that is in the creeds that the, that the Bible requires is that we know the Lord will return. Anyone who has it all worked out when and so forth, you know, just fire them because Jesus didn't know. So if they know, they're, you know, greater than Jesus. So, um, but... All Christians need to believe in what's called the imminent return of Christ. Christ's return could be hundreds and thousands of years from now, and it could be before I finish this sermon. Uh, so when in Advent we actually look forward to we 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 look forward to and, and remember and think about preparing our hearts to get the full impact of His first coming. And I said in the first sermon, I love Advent season. And I especially love Christmas carols. Not the secular ones that they play on the radio, but I, I, a lot of them are silly, actually. But the, the great Christmas carols of old, I especially like them at night. I don't know why I've always liked them at night. At first, when I first started liking them in the evening time and with my kids and, and all this kind of stuff, I, 
I used to kind of like not really know why. But the truth of the matter is, is that what uh, Jesus is called the son, S-U-N, of righteousness. The Proverbs say, uh, as um, the path of the righteous is like the sun that burns brighter until the full day. Christ, you know, like one of the Christmas carols, I think it's a little, the world in darkness, and how does it go? In, in sin and darkness lie and so forth. You know, what Christ's first advent was, is at the peak of darkness, light broke into the world. So it, even in the natural, it gets darker as the night goes on. But then eventually, uh, you know, the hippy-dippy weather forecast, there will, uh, eventually there will be light on the, on the eastern horizon, scattered light, followed by more light, <laughs> followed by the rising of the sun, followed by the sun getting to the fullness of the day. And the, the Bible's whole message is that in Christ, light is going to progressively come to the world until it fills the whole earth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God until the waters cover the seas. Christians have differed throughout the centuries on uh, how much that's going to happen before the second advent of Christ. But historically, um, it's only been in modern times that the prediction was going to be it's going to get darker and darker, and then Christ is going to have to come rescue us kind of thing. He's already came to rescue us. The, the church looked at the greatest event of eschatology as the, the birth, the sinless life, the teachings, the miracles, the discipling, the ministry, the, uh, the trial, the death, the passion, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, his ascension and, and his being crowned and coronated king of the universe, sitting at the fire of his right hand, and the anointing oil of his coronation falling into the air called Pentecost, and that um, that would continue to flow and pour until the whole earth was filled with his glory. That's kind of the more biblical, historical way of looking at eschatology. And even in all of our negativity, which has lost a lot of ground for Western Christianity. The truth is, Christianity is exploding globally, even with a lot of the wrong vision behind it. Uh, because light, the, as John says in John 1, um, the light has come into the world and the darkness could not overpower it. One candle can dispel a lot of darkness. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I used to come down here on Wednesday nights to take out the trash and stuff like that. And it, when we first bought the building, the exit lights weren't working and stuff. So you come in here in the middle of the night, it was really dark. And uh, guess what? One light changed it all, <laughs> right? So, um, so, um, w you know, whether you, what, whatever you think about it, the, the formula has always been this. The kingdom is now. Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he did the works of the kingdom. He said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And um, yet there's going to be a fuller realization of his kingdom at, after the second coming. Okay. Now, all Christians have always believed this. The difference is how, how much... We should work toward or expect God to change things prior to the second coming. And if you study it historically, those Christians who have believed God for more have been the ones who have changed the world. And uh, those who have basically understood that in his first event was the greatest eschatological event, that was the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. And the, that's why Christians change the Lord's Day from the last day of the week to the first day of the week to celebrate the beginning of the new heavens and the new creation and the new earth. And, and because Christ rose at dawn on the first day of the week, symbolic of giving us a message that the path of the righteous would get lighter and lighter till the fullness of day. Think about it. The first Easter Sunday night, Jesus' third appearance... He appeared three times on Easter Sunday, if you read all the Gospels and put them together. His third appearance when he comes into the uh, upper room 
with um, with the dis- disciples cowering in the upper room in Jerusalem, probably the same upper room that they had the Last Supper. At that time, the the band of faithful followers of Jesus was um, probably. 20-ish, 30-ish, something like that, and they were scared, discouraged, demoralized, just like the two guys on the road to Emmaus in his second appearance of the day earlier. They were discouraged, right? Do you know that by the second Easter Sunday, there were thousands of believers who were aggressively taking on the city of Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin and the and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and so forth. And every Easter Sunday for over 2,000 years, the church has been bigger uh, than it was the previous Easter. And I think it was the year 2002, uh, Christianity for the first time, it had continued to grow and grow and grow. And Christianity is now the if you if you're counting everyone who, whether they're nominal Christian or not, is another debate that calls themselves Christians. Christianity is the largest religion in the earth, and pretty much there's three religions that are growing: uh, Christianity, Islam, and secular humanism. Almost every other religion in the world is shrinking in numbers because um, there's a whole story behind that. Let's let's not go there. All right, so. Behold, I send my messenger. Let's look at how uh, you can prepare yourself for the Lord more. All right, now, let's drop back a little bit in Luke. You know, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar and so forth, don't blow that kind of stuff off. Whenever the Bible starts with that kind of stuff, Luke 1 starts with that, Luke 2, Luke 7, you know, because we're talking about a God who intervened redemptively according to his eternal plans, his eternal decree, if you listen to the Kingdom of God series that we did. And he does it at specific points in time with specific people. And the Bible gives you like who was king and who, which pagan emperor was running and so forth. So there, there's a reason for that because we're the only faith in the world that's actually rooted in reality. Every other faith in the world is a deception. And ours is rooted in historical realities that God did and is doing. Now, with all that background, John came in to the Jordan proclaiming, the word preaching means heralding or announcing, not like, you wouldn't mind accepting Jesus, would you? Uh, Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance means is the word metanoia. Um, I have a whole teaching called Eight Definitions of Repentance. It appears over 120 times in the New Testament. Romans 2.4 says the kindness of God grants repentance. In Acts 11, after they had argued with Peter for going to the to going to the Cornelius and the Gentiles' house and eating with them and and you know, accepting them into the faith. Uh, After Peter made his masterful case that God did it, and they were actually arguing with God, it says they quieted down in verse uh, 17 of Acts 11, in verse 18, 17 and 18. They said, so they quieted down and they said, so God has granted to their Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Repentance is a gift of God. Esau never had repentance Jacob was a wily rascal, and he always was granted repentance because of God's uh, sovereign purpose in his life. Saul had remorse. David committed sins that seemed like they were worse, yet he had true repentance, and therefore uh, was called a man after God's heart and wrote some of his best psalms after he'd committed adultery and killed a guy in the cover-up attempt and went through a period of restoration. <laughs> that's the scandal of Christianity, because that's called grace. Like, how could God use a guy like that? He was a murderer. The greatest apostle of the faith, arguably, someone, someone could say Peter and others, Paul, but one of the greatest was a murderer. Praise God. <laughs> you know? 
grace is act. The reason it's a stumbling block is because it's just it's just a scandal. God is actually forgiven you and called you his son or daughter. What's up with that? I mean, if you really think about the depth of human sin and God forgave you in Christ, wow. You're, you know, they're beating him. They're falsely accusing him. Uh, he's dying the most horrible, painful death. If you want to really get into it, there's actually a book called a, Medic- a Doctor Examines a Medical View of Christ's Death. And in the midst of all this, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. I deal with people all the time, including myself, who have a little bit, you know, my back hurts a little once in a while, and this is sort of, and I'm like, oh me, oh my, and you know, and like Jesus is like in the like still remembering his mission, why he's carrying the cross, he's encouraging the the women and stuff. Well, you know, like what? So repentance is to turn away and turn toward the act of seeking of God. We tend to think of repentance only in moralistic terms nowadays, where we kind of are saying, um, you know, I'm going to quit this or quit that. But repentance is actually uh, turning toward the active, aggressive, violent seeking of Jesus. Violent men enter the kingdom of God before. True repentance, when God, that you need to pray for, is God give me a heart to follow hard after you. Right. So confession, that's is really important. Confession is actually from the Greek word hama legeo. Hama, homogenized milk, means the same homosexuals, people who love the same sex and so forth. Hama legeo means to say the same thing God calls it. Because I don't know about you, but I'm like an expert blame shifter, excuse maker, rationalizer. <laughs> And uh, just today, was having a, a brother was saying, like, you're not hearing me. Well, maybe not. You know, <laughs> but, um, well, think, I need to think about that. But um, the, the truth of the matter is we all have a way of kind of, you know, we have excuses. My mother bit me when I was five. The sun was in my eyes. The, the cop, you know, Officer Diaz what, should be doing something more important than giving me a speeding ticket. And uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, we have, you know, that's my wife and I have this ongoing joke where she says, you know, you're a great blame shifter. And I say, well, you know, it's your fault. <laughs> but uh, confession, to, if you really want to prepare for the Lord, ask the Lord to help you get over excuse making, blame shifting, rationalizing, saying stuff like, well, I'm just this way and being defensive. David says, let the righteous smite me with kindness, it's oil upon the head, let not my head refuse it. I actually always say, I don't care if they smite me with kindness, just let them smite me, because I need it. Right? So, um, in real repentance, one of the things I say about repentance, real repentance brings forth fruit, if you go on to read the rest of it. It's root, the word radical means root, one of the great tragedies of the church today is they call it moralizing, and the number one kind of books in, in Christian uh, bookstores are the escapist, uh, left-behind kind of things. And, but the number two is self-help stuff, how you can have your best life today in all this. Uh, you know what? You don't need a little churching up. You need to be recreated. And that's the message of John the Baptist. The axe is laid at the root. You've got to get to the very foundations of these things. And you've got to, you've got to actually give up all pretensions. That's, that's what, why God rejected Israel and Jesus said, I'll build my church. Paul covers this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He says, he says I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, because not knowing about God's righteousness, they sought to establish their own. The difference between religion and reality is religion is always trying to turn over a new leaf. Uh, religion is always trying to convince your brother that I'm really not that messed up, I'm pretty good, and so forth. And I just yelled at my wife in the parking lot, but I'm not going to let you know that, because you're going to say, how are you doing? And I'm going to say, good, good, I'm, praise God, I'm great, I'm a great Christian. <laughs> and uh 
you know, Ananias and Sapphira, their sin was they were trying to look better than they really were. Right? That's why God wiped them out next life. They were trying to look better than they actually were. That's what hypocrisy means. So John the Baptist is coming to, at the root of all that. And that's how we prepare for the Lord. One of the things that you can that you need to take before the Lord, the Bible says, let's draw near, Romans, or Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, let's draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. We actually all need to rend our hearts and not our garments. Right? In other words, we have to ask God, Lord, help me be granted confession of sins, repentance, uh, becoming a new person on more than a surface level. Help me rip, be ripped apart at the level of my heart attitudes and my motivations. Make me a complete new person. There's nothing good that dwells in me. That's the message of John the Baptist. So back to that. That's the messenger. And the Lord got through half of verse 1. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, in the Bible, there's word pictures. Who's the temple? The temple is not a building all through the Old Testament. When when uh, um, Solomon was dedicating the temple, he prayed and said, Lord, you do not dwell in temples made by men. The tabernacle, Solomon's temple, all of that, all the temples, the rebuilt temple in the time of Haggai, who's a post-exile prophet, the first, he's the first of the three post-exile prophets, Malachi is the last. In Haggai, he says, who is it among you who has seen the temple in its former glory. Now, the truth of the matter was, because there were 70 years and so forth, probably no one. If they had seen it in their former, its former glory, they had just seen it in their mind's eye by reading the scriptures. They had been deported to a faraway land, and that generation had died off. And what Haggai is saying is, is there, there will be a people who has a scripturally divine-inspired vision, who become passionate about seeing the house of the Lord become what it was meant to be. That's always the vision of Ezra and Nehemiah in restoration, and John the Baptist, and all those who walk in the spirit and power of Elijah. God is want, wants to come suddenly, and he wants to rebuild the temple to everything about its former glory. Okay, right? So, uh, the Malachi of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord. Let's, I, there's more, a lot more I'd like to say about that verse, but let's at least get to verse two. Who can endure the day of his coming? What's happening in Malachi is they had forgotten what God had taught them in Amos 5, which is this. Um, Alas, you are longing for the day of the Lord. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It'll be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion, as when a bear meets him or goes home. Will not uh, when he goes home and he leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him because <laughs> he thought he was at a safe place. And will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of life, even gloom, not brightness? Now, uh, what people fail to see is the God. Despite the modern dispensational ideas that have kind of tried to make a different God of the Old Testament and a different God of the New Testament, which they say they don't, but it's what they're subtly saying. The God of the Old Testament was mean and nasty, and the God of the New Testament's all love. And, you know, the God of the New Testament killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit, right? So, what um, there's all the continuity between the covenants. Is, is basically saying this. Uh, when God comes, if we're seeking God, God comes not in parts. He doesn't just come with his mercy. When his presence comes, it's actually a day of judgment and gloom and so forth for those who are going the wrong way. But in his merciful purposes... Sometimes the chastisement of the Lord is what turns them. I don't pray that people will be blessed necessarily that are running from God. I'll actually, I, uh, the, the Proverbs, there's only one verse about backsliding in the whole Bible. Proverbs says that backslider in heart will have his fill of his own way. 
when people aren't really on fire for God, I just pray God help them get tired of being selfish, shallow, passive about you. Help them birth something in them that really wants more of you. Right? Because the day of the Lord is not about the end times all through the Bible. It's about all the days. There's different times when God comes in visitation upon his people. And to those, uh, to some people, it's that visitation grants confession, repentance, seeking, and turning. To others, it, gra- it, it grants chastisement and so forth. Now, um, so the one who comes as a refiner and purifier of silver is actually now a different messenger. It's Jesus. Jesus, the, the sons of Levi, is, is a prophetic way of saying uh, the people of God. Because in the Old Testament, God promised in Exodus 19, 5 and 6 that you would be a kingdom of priests. People say the things of the Old Testament don't apply to the church, but actually, 1 Peter 2, 9 quotes the Exodus 19, 5 and 6 word for word. And he says, you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, my special treasure, a people for God's own possession. He said, Peter says that to the church exactly like Moses did. Right? So the difference is, is that because of Christ once and for all sacrifice, our high, we don't have representatives as priests. We have one representative as the high priest, but all of us are priests to the Lord. That's the promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. That doesn't mean we don't need to counsel one another and encourage one another and teach one another, but everyone has access to the presence of God by the blood of Jesus through the confession of sins and through the new birth. You can talk to God and you can hear from God and you can know his presence. And he wants to fill you with his spirit, and he wants to do great and marvelous things. So Jesus is, is coming to purify the sons, of the, the priesthood of the believers. Jerusalem and Judah are different ways of talking about the people of God and the city of God. And he wants to refine them as gold and silver. Okay? Pro- Psalms says that, uh, and Proverbs both have verses about refining gold and silver. As silver is refined through the fire seven times, so every word of God will be tested. One of the things that I'm so amazed at sometimes because of our more instantaneous culture that we have and how deep it's getting is God will actually show people stuff, and they'll tell me, the Lord showed me I'm supposed to do this, and I'm supposed to be part of this group, and I'm supposed to do this and everything, and and a lot of times it's like, wow, yeah, you're right. Like you're hearing stuff from God. This is good. This is scriptural. And the next week they got a different plan, right? Because they didn't hang on to the silver in the purification process and the testing. Anything God shows you, you'll be tested in it. You'll either shrink back in unbelief or you'll persevere in faith. But Hebrews says that we're of those who do not shrink back in unbelief. You'll be tested. Okay? So, uh, when God draws near to us, he draws near for judgment and for blessing. Um, there was one word I wanted to look at real quick, if I can find it. There's a concept in, in covenant thinking. There's eight aspects of all covenants, and one of them is after God told Israel that you will be a kingdom of priests to me, and so forth. The next thing he did is give them the law. All covenants have requirements of obedience, and they have blessings for obeying the covenant, and they have chastisements for disobeying. And that's what this chapter is all about. Now, Israel's sin was deeper than just disobeying, it was pursuing it as if they could do it on their own power. It was the same sin as Paul's addressing with the Galatians. So if you read Exodus 19 carefully, <clears throat> when God's making covenant with Israel in the wilderness with, through Moses, he, he says 
if you will indeed obey my voice, and he gives them all these promises of the sanctions of blessings if they obey, and all these promises of chastisements if they disobey, and they answer. Who knows how they answered? They, they sealed their fate with their answer. They said, all that you have said we will do. What should they have said? All that you have said we hope you'll give us a heart to do, but we could never do it. We need your grace. We need your life. We need you to fulfill, because in every covenant of the Bible, starting with all covenants are covenants of grace. You'll hear people say that the covenant of Adam was works, and that's because they don't understand covenant structure. But all covenants are gracious covenants. All covenants have requirements and boundaries for obedience and sanctions of blessings and so forth. They all have vows, signs, symbols. They all have the same eight elements, right? But um, all covenants in the Bible are broken by the recipients of the covenant. The covenant is granted. They're, they're modeled after an ancient thing called Susandry covenants. The covenant Lord grants them this merciful covenant with all these promises, and they are incapable of doing it. So if you study all the covenants through the Bible, the recipients of the covenants always disobey it and fail. Because God is intending to grant them grace. And you've got to understand how deeply you fail. That's why, like, if there's no depth of doctrine of sin in the church, that's a real problem. So when you, uh, and in all covenants, God then fulfills the covenant. Remember after God had made covenant with Abraham and so forth, he uh, um, slayed a bunch of animals because without the shedding of blood, there's no, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And he laid the carcasses out. And then after dark, uh, the terror of God's presence came upon Abraham and the Lord himself walked through the animals. Because the Lord, the Lord is saying, Abraham is destined to fail the covenant, but I will fulfill the covenant for him. That's why Abraham understands that late, four chapters later, he understands it so deep that he teaches it to his son. The son says, where is the offering? Now, not knowing that he was going to be the offering, but God wasn't about to actually do that. Abraham even knew that. Uh, and, the, and Abraham says, the Lord will provide himself the offering. doesn't mean the Lord himself will provide the offering. It means the Lord himself will be the offering in Genesis 22. In other words, all covenants, we are always covenant breakers, and he is always a covenant fulfiller. And that's basically what Malachi is promising. The Lord will come and refine us. Now, I'm not going to talk about sorcery. Sorcery is more alive than you think by the, word, the way the Greek word for sorcery is the word pharmakeia, which we get our English word pharmacy from. And uh, if you study ancient and false, what's called the mystery cults of the Roman Empire and so forth, almost all false religions uh, have, have aspects of, of using mood-altering and mind-altering drugs to get in touch with the spirits. Believe me, if you've been involved in, in that kind of stuff, you need some help to break uh, the power of those spirits in your life. Adulterers, we, we could talk about all these things if we wanted, but, um, you know, oppression of, the, of, of your workers, the, uh, the, the fatherless. Later in chapter 4, he talks about when he visits, he'll turn the heart of fathers back to their children, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. That's my favorite part, and I'll tell you why. We are living in a time of global lack of fatherhood. It's not just in America. One of the best uh, little books that we use that's really easy to read is called Fields of the Fatherless by an evangelical guy that's basically saying that the problem of fatherhood has become a global problem. If every family in America that called themselves Bible-believing Christians adopted one orphan, that would take care of all the orphans of the world. But the earth has become a, a culture of orphans. The whole earth has become that. And it's a huge problem in America, 
and it's a huge problem um, in uh, in all sorts of different cultures and subcultures and so forth. I wish I could address that more, but we're out of time. But I, I, let me tell you this. There are so many false ideas of spirituality. I, I, I guess I'll, I, I don't know what else I can cover and, and really do a good job. I should probably talk about tithing, but so I'll, I'll talk about two more things. This whole thing of the fields of the fatherless, like we have so many false ideas about what it means to be spiritual. But remember, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The meaning of the incarnation is that God has to change your spirit, your motivations, your attitudes, and that has to work its way out into where you live. My dad used to teach me. When I first became a Christian, my dad was discipling me a little bit, and he said, uh, Greg, the hardest place to live your faith is in your own home, among your brothers and sisters, your wife, etc., and treating them right. And that's exactly where God has called you to live it. Like, if you really want to seek God to become a leader, ask God to show you everything you know, need to know to be a better husband and a servant leader of your wife. Then use that as the platform to ask God to show you how to be a good father. And I'll tell you, it's actually, uh, if, you, if you get involved in counseling, it's, it's, you know, I think sometimes my whole life is that, and I study a lot of it and everything like that, but um, even more important than what kind of father you had is what kind of marriage your parents had. Like, if you really want to do good for your children, love your wife and lay down your life to sacrifice for her and learn how to bring her, disciple her into spiritual wholeness. You know what? The number one way thing we look at when we're considering people for leadership is how good a husband are they? Really? Why? Because your wife is your first church, according to Ephesians 5. In, in how well you can lead her deeper in the things of God is, is exactly what the, the mirror God's given you to, to, to have reality about who you are in God. How well you lead your wife will tell you all about yourself. And that's actually more important than, than how well you father your kids because you can be... Like, this is the myth of, of, of adultery and the myth of, of divorce in our culture. Oh, the kids will be okay because, and, I, and I, I appreciate, like, I had a cousin who had a terrible divorce, and unfortunately he's dead and gone now, but he, he worked hard after that at being a good dad and being involved with his kids the rest of his life. That's all you can do at that point. So, you, can, you know, but the number one thing you can do is actually have a great marriage. I wish I could go into more reasons, but we're out of time, and I was going to say one other thing. Tithing. I talked in the first meeting a little bit about the Lord's Day, and we talked quite about this. The Lord's Day had, uh, was the first day of the week, and it was much more important than we make it today. Um, and I always tell you this. If you go back to the there's four basic church traditions that have some roots in ancient Christianity, the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, the Lutheran, and the Anglican. Now, I'm not any of those, but it doesn't mean they don't have some insights we can learn from in how they approach Scripture at various centuries and times and so forth. Um, and usually, if you find something in those traditions it usually had its roots in the practices of the apostles. It may have lost the power now, and it may have lost sometimes the meaning, or the meaning may be twisted. But if you go, if you realize they did this, and it goes back to the first century, you can find in the Bible what the first century application was. Like what's called confirmation was actually the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Study it out, and you'll find that to be exactly true. So uh, the reason Paul says 
to lay aside as you prosper on the first day of the week. And John starts off Revelation by saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What Paul, he's saying is something very similar to what, what uh, Paul said to the Romans and the Corinthians. I'm with you in spirit, even though I can't be there. So John was acknowledging that all Christians gathered together, every, all the Christians in a city, God healed the body of Christ someday, all the Christians of a city would gather together early in the morning on the Lord's day to celebrate the resurrection of Christ in the, in the new birth and so forth. And there were aspects of the covenant. They always took the covenant meal. They always took communion. The idea of taking communion once a month or something like that is a never, no Christians did that until the 1800s. The idea of having grape juice in communion. The first Christians that ever suggested that were the Gnostics of the fourth century, and the church said, that's a heresy. You can't change the word of God to go along with cultural traditions. So um, there's all kinds of things on the Lord's Day, but part of the Lord's Day should be that, it, that our tithes and offerings are part of our worship. And I would encourage you to, you know, Paul says, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. I, I'm not, you know, I don't really want to get too specific here, but uh, God has led my wife and I, uh, we, we've known each other for well over 40 years, and we've always given way more than 10% to our local church and way more than 10% to other Christian causes. And we have never lacked for anything. As my good friend Monty's in the car dealer, he whenever we have lunch, he goes, "I see you're eating well." You know, <laughs> I'm like, "Thanks a lot." <laughs> in other words, he's telling me I'm fat every time. Like, what a good start to our lunch together. I'm like, Maybe we should go walking instead of eating lunch. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know what? I I obviously haven't missed many meals. I've never not had a roof over my head. You know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, you can't outgive God. And I'm not into this, you give so you get. The reason you give is you believe in the kingdom and you want to invest in its growth. The, the Lord, when Jesus talks about having your treasure in heaven, it's all about a business decision. In, in business, you study a thing called ROI. But both Terry and, and Kent, as soon as I say ROI, they know exactly what that is. David led up, return on investment. Jesus is saying the kingdom is the best return on investment. There, in fact, in an eternal way of speaking, nothing else has any return on investment. Amen.